Well, let's open our Bibles over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. One major problem we have as people is that we don't stop and think a lot of the time. Much of life is reactionary. That's a mistake. That is a real problem. And uh, we need to think. Now, I'm not talking about try to be so deep that you drown yourself in your own thoughts, but I am talking about taking information and thinking about what's being said or what's being written and then responding to it in the right way. This is what God wants us to do. But many times we're often in such a hurry that we don't take the time to focus as we should and appreciate what is around us and in our lives. I've entitled this today, Our God is With Us. Our God is With Us. And in Matthew one twenty one, it says, And she shall bring forth a son. This is the angel, of, of course, speaking. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Of course, the name Jesus means God who is our Savior. And really what the angel is, is doing is, is sort of like a simple definition. His name will be called Jesus. And by the way, this is why, because his name means this. He will save his people from their sins. Now, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Bible defining, you know, gives us its own definitions. Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us, God with us. The name Emmanuel is much more than something on a Christmas card, folks. It is full of significance. Emmanuel means, means much more than many times we stop and think about. We'll see it. Oh, yeah, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, our God is with us. Now, that is an incredible song, by the way, that we sing almost every year. I never get tired of it. I could hear it every day, and I am moved every day. And that is a contemporary song. But um, concerning the name Emmanuel, God with us, that's what it means, there's general reality about it, and then there is a personal reality that God wants us all to understand. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, the general reality is for all mankind, but the personal reality is only for those of us who are his children. Because you cannot enter into the personal reality until you first embrace the general reality of this idea of God with us, this Emmanuel, okay? Let's first look at the general reality. What is the general reality? I'm going to lay some foundation today that I want you to understand. Can I tell you this? There's a lot of people today who will say, oh yeah, Jesus, Jesus, yeah. Uh, uh, You know, I don't even believe he was a real person. I think he's in the Bible and, you know, people have made him up and he's this idealistic person and he's real moral and he's a good teacher and all that, but he's all made up. Well, number one, you're wrong on that. He's not made up. Jesus is an actual person in time, space, history who lived. He's not made up. He's not like the boogeyman. Okay, or, or Peter Cottontail, or even the quite large man with the white beard who smokes a pipe and drives a sleigh that everybody talks about this time of the year. He's not like any of those. He is real. He is real. All right? Jesus, what about him? 
Well, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about him, but it has some things to say that absolutely, if you've never heard what I'm about to cover, it will knock your socks off. Now, that's significant this time of the year. You don't want your socks knocked off. So listen carefully to what I have to say. doesn't make a lot of sense, but anyways. This issue, God, who is he? He is God. He is the Savior of all mankind. Most people are unaware of the miracle, literally, the miracle of the coming of Jesus Christ into the world and the prophecies in the Bible concerning him. Now, listen. I mentioned this Wednesday night, but it bears repeating. I know a lot of you weren't here because you're busy in, in, in ministry here in our church on Wednesday night. There is no book in the world, no book of any quote-unquote faith in the world that will dare go into prophecy. They will not touch it because they know that they're just simply guessing. But the Bible is a book of prophecy. God declares it a book of prophecy. And not only that, in the book of Isaiah, God says, you will know that I am the one true God because I am going to give you prophecy. And that sets me apart from all others. Now, how, how and why would God give us prophecy? Well, he can, the how of that is because he's God and he knows the beginning from the end. He knows all eternity. See, understand, folks, this is something we have a hard time with. We think in terms of, well, okay, if God created everything, then who created God? Nobody. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. Do you know why? Because you don't understand that time, time is like a circle or a capsule. And everything that we know is within that. But God is not in that. He's outside of that. Now, the Christmas story is when God, the eternal God, God the Son... He is the Son of God, but I like to refer to him as God the Son because that kind of gets us understanding the significance of who he is in his place. Christmas is the celebration of God the Son penetrating that capsule, which we call time. God coming into human history, okay? That is what Christmas is all about. And this is a, a miraculous truth. And, and we have prophecies in the Bible. What is prophecy? Truth told in advance. Facts told in advance. Amazing, miraculous things. We find those in Scripture. You see, the Bible is like a canvas where the Holy Spirit, through the Scriptures, begins painting the portrait of someone. And I say the word someone with a capital S. This begins in the third chapter of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, right after the fall of man. Now, I want you to keep in mind that the book of Genesis, that first book in the Bible, was written approximately 1500 B.C., 1,500 years before Jesus ever set foot on the earth. Do you realize how significant that is? In other words, folks, there's no way he could have done it. But yet here it is. We're going to look at several descriptions of the one who would come. So who would this Messiah be? When the Bible says this Emmanuel was going to come, God with us, how could we recognize him? How could we know this one coming was God with us? Well, let's go through these. We're going to go through them quickly, so pay close attention. And I'm just giving you a few because of time. I could give you dozens of them. 
The first we're going to look at is this. The seed of the woman who is the Messiah would defeat Satan. We see that prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. This one who would come would fatally wound the serpent, who is the devil, with a head wound. Yes, the serpent would wound the promised seed, who is Jesus, who would come, but it would not be a permanent wound. In other words, Jesus, did he die? Yes. But what did he do? He came back from the dead and he is alive today forevermore. He is alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. He would come in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. It says, and I will put, this is God talking to the serpent, and I will put enmity, hostility, hatred. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shall bruise his heel. So now these are the first marks on the canvas of time that the Holy Spirit is put. Here's a mark. There's a mark. I can remember when I was in art college and uh, we had this master artist. This was his name. He was a little Italian guy, probably about this high. And his name, literally, his name was Michael Angelo DiVincenzo. Not Irish, not Scandahoovian, all right? And I can remember watching this guy, and he was a master, and I can remember him there in the Art Art Institute of Fort Lauderdale as we would just stand and watch and marvel at this guy. He'd start without, he'd he'd have somebody there posing, and he'd start, and he'd start start drawing a line here and a line there, and say, what in the world is he, what is is he doing? And then he adds to it, and he adds to it, and he adds to it, and all of a sudden, wait a minute, I'm starting to see something here. And he continues and continues and continues. All of a sudden, something starts taking form, and it's like out of the canvas or out of the paper or whatever it was. didn't matter what medium he used. He was a master. This image would emerge, and you would just look at it and say, it looks so real, okay? Well, listen, out of the pages of Scripture comes a portrait of our Lord Jesus Christ, And so the seed of the woman who is the Messiah would defeat Satan. So there's a first thing. This one who would come would defeat Satan. Secondly, the Bible says the scepter would not depart from Judah's bloodline until Shiloh comes. Now, a scepter is a staff used by royalty. Oh, there's a clue. Wait, a scepter would not depart. A scepter is used by royalty. So this one who is coming would be a royal person in the eyes of God of God. Not only that, well, let me show it to you, by the way. Genesis 49, 10, it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Oh, wait a minute. So this one who's coming is going to be royalty, and he's not only going to be royalty, what tribe is he going to come from? Judah. There were 12 tribes of Israel. He would come, the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. All right. The scepter would not depart until Shiloh comes. So it would be a royal line and Shiloh would come. Now, there's an interesting one. What, what does that mean? By the way, it says, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be, which leads us to our third point, Shiloh. What does Shiloh mean? Oh, we're starting to get an idea here. Now, remember, the seed of the woman would defeat the devil. The one who would come would come from the tribe of Judah. The line of Judah would be a royal line. The scepter would not depart from that royal line. Next, Shiloh would come. Who who is this? Now now we're starting to get some, we're starting to see some things here. The word Shiloh means the peace giver, the peace giver. Now, folks, this is 1500 BC. Here, the peace giver would come. See, Jesus Christ came from the tribe of Judah. And what does he offer all mankind? He offers mankind peace with God. 
Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Shiloh, the peace giver, the peace giver. Let's move on. Something that is absolutely profound. D, the Bible tells us that a virgin would conceive. Now you talk about a sign that kind of narrows it down. We won't get into detail. We won't go into a lot of biology here this morning. But listen, this doesn't happen. A virgin does not conceive. It doesn't happen that way. This is an absolute miracle. No wonder the Bible says that it would be a sign. The Lord shall give you a sign. Yeah, I'd say so. That's quite the sign. A virgin shall conceive. Look at this. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The word sign here, it's a masculine noun, meaning a sign, a signal, a mark, or a miracle. This word is used most often in Scripture to describe awe-inspiring events. Can I tell you the virgin birth of Jesus Christ was one of the most awe-inspiring events in human history? You might say, well, okay, it's a miracle. I'll give you that, but what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. If Jesus was not virgin-born, he would have been born a sinner just like we are. If Jesus was born a sinner, he would have his own sins to pay for. If Jesus has to pay for his own sins, he can't pay for our sins. If he can't pay for our sins, we don't have a Savior. If we don't have a Savior, every man, woman, and child who's ever been born, who ever will be born, would end up in hellfire for all eternity. How significant is the virgin birth? It's completely significant. It's incredibly significant. And yet God knowing that and God knowing exactly what he had to do, that's why the Bible says Jesus was conceived not by Joseph and Mary, but by the Holy Spirit. Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. That child had to be free of the curse of sin. He had to be free from a sin nature, right? Let's move on. We're getting the picture, aren't we here? We're getting the picture. The seed of the woman who's the Messiah would defeat Satan. The scepter would not depart from Judah's bloodline until Shiloh comes. Shiloh means peace giver. A virgin would conceive. That's quite the sign. That's a miracle. Next, he would be a male. He would be a male, and his name would be Emmanuel, and the name Emmanuel means God with us. Now, we're not talking about, oh, I feel close to God. We are talking about literally the one who is coming is God with us. He is the man-child, virgin-born, the peace-giver from the tribe of Judah who will defeat the devil. Do we see this? This is getting pretty narrow on who this is. Wait a minute, I'm starting to see the figure on the canvas. This is amazing. Isaiah 9, 6, look at this. For unto us a child is born. Isaiah, by the way, written 700 years before Jesus ever came. 700 years. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. Wait a minute. Remember about the scepter? Kings use a scepter. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name, here's what they'll call him, Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty what? God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 
What a wonderful scripture that is. He would be God with us. God with us. That is amazing. Let's move on. He would govern the world. This still looks forward to the kingdom age or the millennium. Now you might say, where do I get that? The government would be upon his shoulders. He would govern the world. And we know after Jesus came, and also we know in the Old Testament as well, it talks about his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. See, people say, well, I wonder who the the last world ruler of the world will be, Jesus. He'll be the best and he'll be the last. He would govern the world. This still looks forward to the kingdom age or what we call the millennium. Gee, as I've already uh, mentioned, he would be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I love that, the Everlasting Father. But let's get geographical here. What about the next one? He would be born in Bethlehem, Ephratah. Turn with me to Micah chapter 5. It's a little... They call him a minor prophet. Their message wasn't minor, but it's a small book, so they call it a minor prophet. He would be born in Bethlehem, Ephratah. Now, you might say, what's the significance of that? Well, number one, that is an amazing prophecy. All the cities of the world, the Bible comes and says, the Holy Spirit says to Micah, he is going to be born in Bethlehem, but not just Bethlehems. You see, folks, there were two Bethlehems at the time. The Lord says, let me get specific to where you know it's me. And we're not just guessing. He would be born in Bethlehem, Ephratah. Micah 5, 2. Again, 600 years before Jesus ever came. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be the ruler in Israel. The scepter shall not depart. He will govern the world, right? That is to be the ruler in Israel, whose watch this now, whose goings forth have been from old, from what? Everlasting. Hey, wait a minute. There's no question. If we didn't get it in Isaiah 9, 6, where he said he would be the mighty God, the everlasting father, we should get it here. His goings forth have been from old, from how long? Everlasting. See, he is God himself. He is God, the creator of heaven and earth, the Bible tells us. Let's move on. Let's look at another one. The one Born would be from, as we see in Micah 5, from everlasting. Only God is from everlasting. All of these prophecies, folks, came to pass exactly as God said. Now, if that's not enough, and we won't cover the whole chapter because of time, Isaiah chapter 53. Remember, Isaiah was written some 700 years before Jesus ever came. And what do we see in Isaiah? You know, there are Jewish people today who, when a Christian reads them Isaiah chapter 53 and doesn't tell them what it's about, there are Jews who have actually heard Isaiah 53 read to them, not knowing where it is in scripture. And they have said this, well, I'm sorry. When they read these verses, Isaiah 53, five and six, the Jewish person will say this, I'm sorry, we don't believe the New Testament. It's not in the New Testament. It's in your Bible. Look at the language. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities, our transgressions, our iniquities. Not his. He didn't have any. Remember, he was virgin born. He had no sin. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by and with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity 
of us all. Would you look up here for a moment? Dear friend, if you're here today and you're not sure where you're going when you die, let me explain this to you based on these verses here. This hand representing you and me and my wallet representing our sin. We're all sinners. We all have iniquity. We have violated God's standard of perfection. We cannot get to heaven with even one sin because heaven's a perfect place and you've got to be perfect in God's eyes, sinless to get there. None of us are. None of us are. God says our sin has to be paid for. He's not only a God of love, he's a God of justice and holiness. All of us have sinned. All of us have to have a payment for our sin. God says the wages of sin is death. If we did it, we'd have to spend forever separated from God in hell. Nowhere in the Bible does it say the wages of sin is good works. It doesn't say that. That's what most people believe. You go to heaven by good works. You don't go to heaven by good works. Good works have no part in saving you. So the best we could do will not take away sin. See, sin has to be gone. So then what are we going to do? We're in trouble. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Watch this. Let's his hand representing Jesus Christ. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our sin was laid on the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died in our place. He made the payment, came back from the dead to prove it. And he says, if you will put your faith in him, if you will trust in him as your savior, he will give you everlasting life as a gift. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing truth this is. All of our sin was laid on Christ. What brings salvation? Simply us, folks, accepting the payment Jesus made on our behalf by faith, saying, I will accept that payment as my own. I will, I will put my faith in Christ that he died and paid for all of my sins. I trust him that, that he did that for me. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God sees your faith and he saves you and declares you righteous the moment you trust Christ as your savior. Emmanuel, God with us. This is amazing. Do you see these amazing truths? The book, Know Who You Believe, says this. It says, the prophet Isaiah in the 53rd chapter lists 15 specific details of Jesus' death. Verses 3 to 12 speak of his suffering, rejected by his people, silent before his accusers, took our sins on himself, treated unjustly, buried with rich people, and raised from the dead. Mind-boggling. 700 years before Jesus ever came, yet it's written there. It has been said... The odds of just eight prophecies being fulfilled in exact detail in one person would be one in 10 to the 17th power. That is one with 17 zeros after it. Just eight of one person. Folks, there are hundreds of prophecies in the Bible. People say, why do you believe the Bible? I'm telling you why. Can you imagine one in the 17th power, one with 17 zeros after it? Ask your local math expert about that, what that means. Do you know what that is? That is virtually impossible. But it gets better. It gets better. In the book Concise Bible Doctrines, the author Elmer L. Towns says this. He says over, now listen, this is great. Over 40% of the Bible was prophetic when it was written. Some scriptures told of nations that would be judged by God and they were judged. Others deal with the future of individuals, and they too were fulfilled. Now, listen. Here you go. Hundreds of prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus to save men were literally 
fulfilled in his lifetime. Here you go. The odds of this happening by chance are 1 in 10 to the 23rd power. That's 1 with 23 zeros after it. Those are the chances. Or about the same as a blindfolded man finding on the first try a particular silver dollar thrown into a pile of silver dollars large enough to cover the state of Texas two feet deep. That's our book. Listen, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you better trust him as your Savior, folks. This book is true. And the destinies of men are laid out here. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5, 13. These truths not only prove who Jesus is, but you know what else they do? It proves this is a supernatural book. And if this is a supernatural book, God is real. One of the greatest proofs of the existence of God is this book. Because man could not have come up with it. Impossible. Impossible. We've just covered why it's impossible. If it's impossible for man to come up with this, then this is, came from a supernatural being. That supernatural being being God. Therefore, God does exist. Well, I don't, I don't know if I believe God exists or not. Let me tell you, when you die, you'll believe. You need to trust Christ. Why did God have to come in the flesh? Well, because we needed someone qualified who could die for us, as we saw in Isaiah 53. He didn't enter the human race simply to enter the human race. Okay, He didn't come to make Hallmark a lot of money or American Greetings, or any of these other companies, or make all the merchants rich on Black Friday. No, he came to make a payment for our sin. That's the whole reason he came. He had a complete life mission in mind. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. Would you look at this with me? 1 John 4, verse 14. I love this verse. I think it's one of the most beautiful Christmas verses in all the Bible. And we have seen and do testify... That the Father sent the Son. You notice he didn't create the Son. The Father sent the Son into time, space. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of who? The world. That's everyone. That's why the angel said, good news unto all people. Because everyone can be saved by simply trusting in Christ as the one who died for them. And so this is the beauty of the scriptures. Luke 19.10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. How many of us come into this world lost? All of us, right? So then who did Jesus come to seek and to save? All of us. Because all of us are lost. Isn't that simple? So that's the general reality. The general reality is, yes, the Bible is true. Yes, Jesus is God in the flesh. There's no question about it. Yes, he came to accomplish a mission. Yes, he did accomplish his mission. He died for our sins. When he was on the cross, he said, it's finished, paid in full, bowed his head, gave up the ghost. Three days later, came back from the dead. And he offers eternal life to anyone who would trust him as Savior. But see, then there's the personal reality. The personal reality is this. When we believe, he becomes our personal Savior. And folks, with that come many wonderful truths. And I'd like to quickly go through those. 
The first that I'd like to mention is this. He is the shepherd of his sheep. He is the shepherd of his sheep. Now, you know, the Lord could have used any illustrations he wanted in Scripture. But what he does is he likens this to sheep. And there's a reason for that. Because sheep are stupid. They're dumb. They make dumb choices. They make dumb mistakes. They do dumb things to each other. And so he likens us to sheep. But with that picture, he says, hey, I'm the shepherd and I love my sheep. As dumb as you are, I love you. How do we know he loves us? Because he died for us. He was willing to die for us. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. That's why we don't have to fear. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Here we are, dumb sheep, wandering all over the place, getting sucked into things that are wrong, wrong thinking, wrong actions, making a mess of life. And then the great shepherd comes into the picture. And when we trust Christ the Savior, he says, hey, you know what? Do you feel bewildered like you don't know what you're doing? You should feel that way because you are bewildered and you don't know what you're doing. But the good news is this. Now that you've trusted me as your Savior, I will lead you into safety, into places of blessing, into places of refreshment, and I will help you. And I will not only be your Savior, I will also be your shepherd if you will just follow me. Is it a choice? Oh, it's all a choice. Nothing's programmed. But wouldn't it make sense to say, hey, you know what? Yeah, I blow it on a regular basis. I think if the omniscient God, who is my Savior, Jesus, is willing to shepherd me, lovingly care for me as one of his own sheep, I think I'm going to follow him and follow his word. And let him lead me in life, not go my own way. Folks, listen, when sheep go their own way, they end up being meals for wolves. He is our shepherd and he is our protector. Secondly, he is our strength. God with us, Emmanuel. Emmanuel is our strength. He is God with us, Emmanuel. Isaiah 41.10. I love these scriptures. It says, fear thou not, for I am with thee. You see that? Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed. Don't be bewildered, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. This is the Lord coming to our aid. This is the one we've trusted. This is the one we've trusted as our Savior. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And once I've trusted Christ the Savior in a personal way, he's not just there in a general way because God is all over the world, right? He's, he's, he's omnipresent. But he's there in a personal way in my life once I've trusted Christ as my Savior. And he is my strength. He is my strength. And he's your strength as a believer. I'd say, well, I just feel worn out. Trust him. Fall upon him. 
cry out to him. Lord, I'm just a dumb sheep. He says, I love you with an everlasting love. I want to shepherd you. I want to be your strength. Nothing that you come into is too difficult for me. I am God, the all-powerful one, and I am your shepherd. He's our strength. Third, he's our comforter. He's our comforter. Uh, Go with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Would you do that? He is our comforter. Folks, he is with us in our pain. He is with us in our problems. Why? Because he is God with us, Emmanuel. That's why. You might say, oh, I'm, I'm suffering. I feel like I'm by myself. You know what? That's our foolishness and our feebleness. And we think that, and we all think that at times. And we get discouraged and we get in despair. God has not left us. He's not going to leave us. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not an high priest, speaking of Jesus, God with us, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Might say, well, you know what? I was in need yesterday. I'm in, I'm in need again. I hope God doesn't mind. Oh, he doesn't mind. It's his privilege. It's his joy to love and care for his children and his sheep. And if you've trusted Christ, that means you. That means you. He's our comforter. Next, he is with us in our service to and for him. Why? Well, because he is God with us, Emmanuel. As I serve Christ, as I, as I share the gospel with somebody, as I try to live the Christian life in easy and or difficult circumstances, there's never a time when he's not there. Folks, listen, when God wants us, let's say, to share the gospel with somebody lost, he doesn't get behind us and, and go, get out there and do it. I'm watching and grading. No, that's not the way he works. We work that way, but God doesn't do it that way. You know what he does? He says this, let's go. 1 Corinthians 3 says we are laborers together with God, right? He's with us in our service. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world or the age Amen. Lo, I am with you always. By the way, that's a great verse for eternal security, isn't it? He's with me all the time. All the time. He's with me when things are going good. He's with me when things are going bad. He's with me when I feel good. He's with me when I feel bad. He's with me when I'm blessed by someone. He's with me when I'm troubled by someone. He's with me when a negative surprise comes into my life. He's with me when everything is calm. He's with me when I don't think I can go another second. And yet he, his power and his presence, they don't even blink. You know, they don't, it's not even just a like that. A little bit of a failure there. Oop. No, never with God. Never with God. Lo, I am with you always. Next, he is our eternal security. I love that. I have eternal security. Yep. Why? Well, because he is my eternal security. Okay. He is God with us, Emmanuel. Look at John chapter 3, verse 16. John 3, verse 16. You know, I read something yesterday on the internet, kind of interesting. I don't even know why, how I came across it or where it was, but they said this, according to, I think it was Bible Gateway, which is a 
I think it was Bible Gateway, which is a, a website, a Christian website, where there's, you can read the Bible and you, there's helps and different things like that. They said this last year, this is interesting, the most searched for verse in the Bible was, what do you think? I knew you'd say that, John 3.16. Guess what? You're wrong. Out of all the verses, it was Romans 12.2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And you love that, huh? Romans 12, 2. I was surprised by that. I figured it was going to be John 3, 16 or something like that. Matter of fact, John 3, 16, I don't think was on the top 10 list. Sort of interesting. You know what? It's on my top 10 list. Look at it, dear friend. Can I say today, if you have never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, this is for you. For God so loved the world. Who does that include? You, me, everybody of all time, everywhere. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus died in our place, paid our sin debt, came back from the dead to prove it. And it says that whosoever believeth in him, trusts in him, two promises, should not perish, go to hell, but secondly, instead, have everlasting life. Go to heaven. Everlasting life. You know what that means? That means no matter what, you can't lose it. Oh, don't tell people that. Why not? That's the good news. Listen, if you have to behave to stay saved, you're simply putting works into the gospel. You're trusting in your works. You're trusting in your behavior. You're trusting in your faithfulness. That's not faith in Christ. That's faith in you. Put your faith in Christ and rejoice that he is Emmanuel with us who's paid for our sins. And he's offered us salvation as a gift. John 10, 28, Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. You know who any man includes? You, me. Listen, Emmanuel, God with us. Can I tell you, dear friend, if you haven't trusted Jesus Christ as your savior, God is present with you, but he wants it to be a personal reality. See, it is a general reality. He wants it to be a personal reality in your life. Would you today put your faith, put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? The Bible is the Word of God. It proves to be the Word of God. It proves there is a God. Everything it has said has come to pass exactly like God says. It is something you can completely trust. Would you trust his message He says, if you'll put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, he will give you today everlasting life. Would you do that? Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. And God bless you.